replacing the kingdoms of men. It's a, a scriptural phrase, of course. I've noticed of late that uh, there are those in the wider Christadelphian community that may tend to avoid very much of this subject. Um, when we look at the scripture, there is a great deal of information given to us concerning what is the kingdom of men. It's many facets and features and characteristics. And the, the final stage of it, really, we've just read in, in Revelation 18, which isn't, it isn't our job tonight to, to do an exposure of, of Revelation 18, though we will refer to it again later. Um, but clearly, all of these things are recorded with a purpose. And I believe that it's not only to, uh, to show us what it is that will be replaced by the kingdom of Christ when it comes, though that surely is the case, but also to, to help each one of us to be aware as we await God's kingdom, to be aware not to be involved. As the verse we just read said, come out of her, my people, be not partakers of her sins. And it seems likely to me that that verse is speaking more directly to Israel, but also all of it, of course, affects us. We're asked to do exactly the same thing and have the same manner of holiness. So, uh, so we're going we're gonna to start uh, back in Genesis chapter 4, if you'd like to come there. And I don't propose to teach you anything that you don't already know tonight. Um, what I think that we're trying to try and do is just frame the subject in an outline manner as, as Scripture presents it, so that we can appreciate, hopefully, the big picture of it and, uh, and, and keep that in our minds as we await the Lord's coming. So... Cities are a feature in the kingdoms of men, a very large one. And if you look at the scripture and ask yourself the question, oh, well, Jerusalem, of course, is extremely famous both now and in the future. But it wasn't the first city, was it? God, as it were, didn't invent cities. Man did. Now, that's quite a strange thing when you come across it. So here we are back in Genesis chapter four, and you'll know the verses well. Verse 16 says, Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Of course, not a, not a word wasted. We'll hear uh, an echo of, of much of that shortly. But the result of it, of course, uh, Genesis chapter 6 is that when this began to happen, when mankind began to amass together in these, these city environments, that we got this, this great force known as the, uh, the daughters of men and man above them, of course. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 says, It came to pass when man became to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives out of all which they chose. And so we instantly see the effect that these things have on a community of believers, and it is a great warning to us. And we read in verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown or men of a name. God saw the, oh Yahweh, sorry, saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every imagination of the thoughts of heart was 
only evil continually. And so this, this city living environment is, is what had tended to this. Now, we'll go to Genesis chapter 11 in a second uh, now, if you like. And as we're heading there, I'm just going to read you a, uh, a paragraph from um, His Lot's Two Babylons. Very interesting read about the, uh, the rise of the, the kingdom of men uh, in its various phases. So you'll all be familiar, of course, with Nimrod, this great city builder we'll look at in Genesis 11. His Lot says about him, according to the system which Nimrod was the grand instrument in introducing, men were led to believe that a real spiritual change of heart was unnecessary and that so far as change was needful, they could be regenerated by mere external means. And so the actual obedience unto a creator, unto a God, that form of worship with which we hold so dear, um, oh, no, that, I don't need that. No, you don't need that. Um, in fact, all of the things that surround us and with which we can surround ourselves, that they can take the place of that seems to have been the leading of, of Nimrod. So looking at the subject in the light of the Bacchalanian orgies, which, as the reader has seen, commemorated the history of Nimrod, it's evident that he led mankind to seek their chief good in sensual enjoyment and showed them how they might enjoy the pleasures of sin without any fear of the wrath of a holy God. In his various expeditions, he was always accompanied by troops of women and by music and song and games and revelries and everything that could please the natural heart, he commended himself to the good graces of mankind. So the designs then of the kingdom of men from a very, very early stage have been to fill the heart with completely different things to the things of God, of which we are so familiar. So uh, Genesis chapter 11, we read in verse 1 that the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. came to pass as they journeyed, as they, they broke away onwards, uh, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, the land of the enemy's tooth, and they dwelt there. Verse 4 says, they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Remember that phrase. And let us make us a name. Genesis 4, they named the city after their son, you see. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad among, upon the face of the whole earth. Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And of course, we know his assessment of it. And that what he would choose to do was to separate them one from another. This being together in a city format in which they were, in this king's dominion of men, was not suitable for worship of the creator. On our way forward, stop if you will in, Gen uh, sorry, in, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 49. Just a couple of verses there that uh, Sister Zoe seems to have quite memorised, uh, which are quite telling about the heart of man, about the, the situation that man finds himself in and God's assessment of it. So uh, Psalm 49, verse 11. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. 
Nevertheless, man being in honour abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. And then it repeats it in verse 20. Man that is in honour and understandeth not, that is, mentally separates, that one that doesn't mentally separate himself is like the beasts that perish. Now, we could go into a very, very long and uh, meandering history of the kingdoms of men. It's not our choice for this evening to do that. I'll jog your memory of a couple of things which you've probably heard of, because from a very early time, the kingdom of men has been taking note of this. Uh, they're trying to keep hold all the time. They're trying to grab everything that comes near and to, to keep it all for themselves and for their posterity. So starting at things like Ashurbanipal's library, this was, again, the amassing of the information of mankind so that they could stand on one another's shoulders and slowly build this, uh, this empire of knowledge. Going forward into the famous things like Hammurabi's Code, and you'll probably all have seen a picture at some point of a large phallic-shaped stone upon which are written all of the codices of men, commandments for them to keep. You go from there to the treasuries of Petra, to the temple scripts of the Hittites, to Egypt and all of its familiar uh, familiar language there and all of the things that they tried to keep and they tried to record knowledge that they, they wanted to hold on to. And you see that man actually has quite an obsession with this. And of course, the latest attempts in our day and age are to store everything on hard drive formats of some description on, uh, on media servers at uh, undisclosed locations great great swathes of information oh they don't want to lose it and they don't seem to realize just how fragile they have made their world in storing things digitally well we had to do it then didn't we? we we're talking about the kingdom of men we had to go to daniel chapter two eventually so come there if you would please and of course uh, we'll be familiar with a great deal of christadelphian lectures that start in this place when they're talking about this subject and rightly so We'll take just a, a few verses from here. Again, words familiar to us. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. That's what all of this is about. Okay, when we look at Daniel chapter 2 and we see all the stages of history from the period of Babylon onwards, actually what's being explained to us is the, the gathering of all of the things down through the ages of the kingdom of men, what shall be in the latter days. So, uh, same chapter, verse 31, Thou, O king, sawest, behold, a great image great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee the form thereof was terrible the image's head was of fine gold breast and arms of silver his belly and thighs of brass his legs of iron his feet part of iron part of clay and of course here's the bit we we like so much thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, clay, brass, silver, and gold broken to pieces together, 
and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away. No place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the final picture there, the kingdom of Christ, the great mountain that fills the whole earth, formed from a stone that was not of human carving or manufacture. It's not been shaped by the ages of humanity and their record keeping and their technologies. This is something devised by the almighty to replace. Let's look at that word to replace the kingdoms of men. Okay, it doesn't grow alongside them like all other kingdoms in history have. It's not like that at all. It smashes them all at once on the feet and grinds them to powder. All of those that would stand against God and his people, uh, their destruction comes hastily. Now, I want to draw your attention, if I can, because I know that you're very familiar with the things that we've just read, to a couple of words in verse 38. It says, Wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowls of heaven, hath he given into thine hand, Nebuchadnezzar, and hath made thee ruler over them all. And I want you to be very, look, very careful about these words. Thou art this head of gold. It doesn't say Babylon is this head of gold, although we have that very much in our minds as the identity of the image, and we've no problem with that, but there's a little more here. Look, thou, Nebuchadnezzar, art this head of gold. Now, why is that important? Come over to Daniel chapter 4. Wheresoever the, uh, the, the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowls of heaven, Daniel chapter 4 gives us, of course, the image of the tree. So another dream by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4, verse 10. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. The height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth reached unto heaven. You didn't miss that, did you? The leaves thereof were fair, fruit thereof much, in it was meat for all, beasts of the field had shadow under it, fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. This is a kingdom, a system, which has associated itself with all of those around it. It's just like the city of Nimrod's building. He would put up the walls to protect them from everybody else and invite them to bring their trade in. You see, we'll, we'll get everybody to bring in here. I'll take my cut. Everybody can be fed. You won't have to go outside anymore where the wild beasts are, he says. This is exactly the same thing had been accomplished these years later in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had built a system in which all of the nations that surrounded him, all of the peoples could find protection and trade, and indeed a, a system of law and rule. There's a very famous record that is uh, that has survived down through the ages of um, the tax affairs of one Lady Gaga concerning her slaves and outbuildings from the period of Babylon. I mean, it's amazing the record that they kept when we look back now, but these things are very, very real. And of course, you just occasionally find, even in popular music culture, somebody who's got a little bit of education of these things and has chosen one of these names for herself. What a strange thing. So, massive system, all of it's there. And Daniel chapter 4, verse 23 says, 
Whereas the king saw a watcher, holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. Now we know what this means. This is that Nebuchadnezzar would suffer a form of what's called lycanthropy and he would go out into the field and uh, eagle's claws like feathers coming out of his hairs, etc. He would be as a beast, a basest of man, and he would literally pillage among the fields for seven years, as times means there. However, it's been suggested by many that there is a, a larger foreshadowing that's given in this, which many of you will be familiar with, I'm sure. So seven times and the seven times, uh, seven times 360 years is 2,520, uh, sorry, uh, days, 2,520. And you take that into the day for a year principle. And the start point shouldn't really be ambiguous, but for some reason is we all think, oh, well, at the end of uh, the, the kingdom of Babylon, when the Medo-Persians took them. But actually, when we got Daniel chapter two in mind, thou, Nebuchadnezzar, art this head of gold, we actually should be looking at the end of Nebuchadnezzar because the demise may have seemed slow for the next few years through his progeny, but, uh, but Nebuchadnezzar was the face of the kingdom of Babylon and its making, as it were. So from the death then of Nebuchadnezzar, at 562 BC, we jump forward 2,520 years, as is suggested, and that lands us in 1957. And what we would imagine to see then is the rising of something similar to the tree, which would spread forth its influence on as many things as possible, that would drag things close and keep hold of systems and trade and rulership and would be a form of protectorate as well. And what we find in 1957 is the signing, of course, of the Treaty of Rome, the fourth element of the image, or as it became known, the Economic uh, European Community. Got them the wrong way around, but you, you know what I'm saying. Now, that's all very well, uh, and we can see exactly what that means. In fact, uh, just a few years ago, there was a very interesting uh, column wrote by Boris Johnson. You might know he was, I think, Telegraph correspondent from Brussels for some 10 or 12 years. And uh, he knows what Europe is. Quite interesting, some of his comments on it. Uh, in fact, I think Brother Bernard's still got my, uh, my copy of, uh, of Boris's book, um, The Dream of Rome, which is a very interesting comparison um, between the Roman Empire of old and the modern attempt of it uh, by Europe and all of its pitfalls and failings. But Boris describes the European Union as being like a lobster that sort of sits at the bottom of the water and anything that comes close to it, it grabs and just keeps. Nothing gets away from it. And this is the way that the legislation and trade affairs of, of Europe have been orchestrated these years since the signing of the Treaty of Rome. Now, of course, a few years later, when they came to, uh, to have their own European offices and things, and they decided that uh, governance was definitely a part of their remit, that what they would do is that they would build themselves a wee building. 
and of course they did the European Parliament building which many of you will know I'm sure that it's a circular building that works its way up in stairs and it's based on a very famous artistic impression of the Tower of Babel as portrayed by the artist Bruegel. Now in spite of all of their attempts in spite of it all what we find is that it just doesn't work it just isn't coherent mankind is just not good at being together in this way led over by men who are interested in power and profit many of them can make themselves a situation in it but history has always proved that it leads to a situation of a great number of poor people in the world who are either exploited or mistreated. And what we won't have time to do, sadly, tonight, but I would like you to try and do some time as homework, is to find as many as the quotations as you can in the prophecies that talk about the kingdoms of Christ. And what you will find is that one of the most prominent features is that he, as a king, is there to judge for the poor and the needy. He cares for them and he protects them in the age of the millennium. And what a great, great contrast to all of man's dark, dark history. So now then we come to uh, Revelation chapter 18 that we read together. And just a few verses there that we slightly already referred to because all of these things do have very obvious implications for us as believers. And they're found then in the book of Revelation, chapter 18. And we read, first of all, verse four. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. And as I say, I, I have a conviction that by the time this utterance goes forth, the saints actually have been removed. They are joined with Christ. And this instruction is, is more particularly for natural Israel. But of course, it completely applies to us. If we want to be with Christ, the place that Israel will be called to, we would expect, of course, to be of this ilk, to have come out of her. For, verse 5, her sins have reached unto heaven. Not her tower that she's builded, not her name that she would like to last. No, her sins, the list of her transgressions and iniquities are what come before God, says verse five. And because of them, of course, he acts to replace the kingdoms of men. Uh, Daniel chapter seven for a minute, please, if you will. There is a, uh, a very interesting expositional note concerning Daniel chapter 7 that's given by H.P. Mansfield, I'll read you in a second, and I think that it has perhaps more implication for us now than any other people that have lived in history. So Daniel chapter 7, and we'll read a few verses just to familiarise you again with words that I'm sure you already know. Daniel 7 verse 2, what we're dealing with, of course, is the uh, uh, another dream. And it's now, uh, instead of the four materials that would make up the image, as Nebuchadnezzar understood the kingdoms of men, glorious and powerful and uh, all these ones, now God sees them as beasts. And that is the, the, the big takeaway, I think, from the contrast given in Daniel chapter 7. 
So Daniel 7, verse 2. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of the heavens drove on the great sea. Four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. And I hope you'll, you'll notice as we read through that just like the history of the kingdoms of men, they are given in a succession to help you understand that although they do replace each other, they uh, assume the things that had gone before them. So the first verse four was like a lion had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, lifted up from the earth, made stand upon the feet as a man. Man's heart was given to it. And this depicts for us, first of all, the kingdom of Assyria, and then its mild change into what we understand as Babylon. Verse five, I beheld another beast, a second like to a bear, raised up itself on one side, had three ribs in the mouth of it and between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, arise and devour much flesh. So this is the Medo-Persians and the much flesh amounted to the 127 provinces, which Daniel informs us of. Started, of course, with its, uh, its, its, um, its median ruler, but that was only for a few years. And then the Persians would rule it for about 206 after that, I think. That is it raising up on one side. Uh, it's thought that the three ribs in the mouth of it refer to three powerful empires that went before, being Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. All of these things are found in, in HP's exposition of Daniel. Uh, after that, verse 6, after that, long like a leopard, had on the back of it four wings. The beast had also four heads. Dominion was given unto it. And this is the, the rise of the Alexandrine Greek Empire and later its deliverance to the four generals thereof. Um, interesting footnote, possible that the reason he dedicated the first 30 years of his life for wanting to destroy the Medo-Persian Empire is because the area of Lydia that was taken by them was, of course, where, uh, where Macedonia falls, and Philip of Macedon, being his father, would have been much humiliated if not found his demise in those things. And then finally, verse 7 after this, I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, devoured, broke in pieces, stamped the residue of the things that were before, of course, with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, what we know from history is that there were great gains in territory, as it changed from one power down through time to the next. Great gains until you get finally, of course, to the Roman Empire, which was huge. Also encompassed like a third of the top part of Africa as its breadbasket for supply, which, of course, we know Rome was great at exploiting and never rewarding or helping. And so now you look and it's mostly desert, which, of course, in the power of the father, helped with the demise of the Roman Empire. So the territory grew, but it became more inferior because like as a lion is the king of the beasts uh, and a bear slightly less and a leopard slightly less again and this dreadful crocodilian thing whatever it is um less again we assume it doesn't even seem to have a face does it you know just like the metals in daniel chapter two there is something lacking in the quality 
of the empires as they go down. And it's been said by other speakers, I can recommend Roger Lewis on this subject fantastically. Um, he pins it down to um, the way that the power becomes uh, divided among the people. So you start with uh, Nebuchadnezzar, one man, right at the top, ruled as a god. Anything he said happened. But by the time you get down uh, through the different empires to Rome, well, yeah, you've got a Caesar, but uh, can't really do everything he wants. Got to answer to a Senate. And they, of course, to the leftovers of the demos, that's the, the general population that they're answerable to and elected by, uh, as was founded in the Greek time, etc. It is getting weaker as it goes down. They are answerable to the things of men. Now, all of that very interesting, but the bit that I really wanted to pick out for you is concerning the Medo-Persians. Now, apologies if you've heard this before. Lesser empires had fallen apart for lack of fast-moving message or army. Darius, the management man, made his royal road a model of its time. It ran over 2,000 kilometers from Susa, the capital near the Persian Gulf, to Sardis in one time Lydia, almost within the sight of Greece. Fresh horses and men waited at all times at post stations along the way. The wheel ruts paved in stone, whole route marked off in parasangs, a measure usually a little over three miles. Strictly speaking, the parasang was the measure of an hour's travelling time, which varied in different parts. Along this marvellous road, kept free of bandits, well stocked with inns for food and rest, sped the king's messengers. Day and night they rode, and from Herodotus' description of their dependable service comes this phrase often adapted to postmen in a later day. These are stayed neither by snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor darkness, from accomplishing their appointed course with all speed. The Persians ran the first males along such roads. And so now we can look at the, uh, the, the basis of our word media, because that's where it comes from. The conveyance of information as fast and as trouble-free as possible. That's exactly what it's talking about. Now, all right, it can have good things or else I wouldn't be able to talk to you fine people tonight, would I? But it can have a lot of bad as well because now each one of us have one of these lovely devices with about 10 times more power than the computers that sent man to the moon. And they can not only monitor us and hear everything that we say if they should choose, ah, we laugh at that, it's not really a problem to us. We're not really up to anything too bad, are we? Worse than that is that they are capable of social programming. Because now, brothers, sisters and young people, they've got us inside the city walls. They control how we can buy things and how we can trade and what information is actually accessible. And never has this been more apparent than it is now uh, at the tail end of a pandemic where you can't drive down the road anymore without noticing a dozen Amazon trucks because the world's largest internet sales company is taking over the world. You know, all of these things are like, oh, hello, we've got a very new, interesting way of living, which has served us very well for this last year, as they knew it would. But actually, is it really the safest thing to do? Or have we narrowed the interests of the worldwide community 
into one thing. Now everybody's got Google at their fingertips. And in some ways, that's a good thing, you know, because you've got access to information, as long as it's the information they want you to have. But also, of course, you've got Facebook and all of the, dare I use the word vomit, that comes with such things, because people don't tend to think too much before they tap with their thumbs and whack it away. Before they've, they've had a, a brain ease at all, it's sent. And well, come what may, I can't see the person's face. It doesn't seem the same. The whole world has become one big city of men. Now, I don't know how you've been coping for news over the last year, brothers, sisters and young people. But let me tell you, I've never seen it so biased. I have never seen it so one-sided, so changed, because they tell you exactly what they want you to hear, and the rest of it just disappears. And in fact, I've found some brilliant documentaries about things, about, uh, about corruption in political systems, about, about the rise of people to power, about the wars that are going on in China and the places around it, about the corruption and pollution in these areas. And the really odd thing is that a week after you've watched them, oddly enough, you can't find them again. They've gone. Like it just takes them a, a little bit to uh, to realise it was there, and they oh no 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 not supposed to be telling people that bit are we now you know? Media is a very very dangerous tool. Um, uh, a thing that I was talking with someone about not that long ago is um, Sky News. Now I'm not saying don't go and watch Sky News. What I'm going to say to you is that there is a huge difference between the Sky News channel that we have in the UK and Sky News Australia. I don't know if any of you ever looked. You have a look at the difference between those two channels. It is massive, absolutely massive. And in fact, Sky News Australia is, uh, is currently commenting and running stories about CNN and other US news networks, which have been caught undercover by some Project Veritas, admitting that for large amounts of money, their whole corporation is bent in one direction. It's nothing to do with care or the will of the people or information. It's just programming. There are entire schools and doctrines that go along with this idea of the manipulation of mankind to guide it for the desire of a very, very few well-funded individuals. So the world in which we live then has an interest, just like Nimrod did, in taking our attention away from things that matter or that are true or that are important and surrounding us with padding, with things that please the flesh for a short season, but do not bring along the things of eternal life. Quick look at me watch. You're doing well. I haven't seen any fall asleep yet. I'm probably not looking hard enough. Okay, so... Uh, with the world being as one big city, there are some, some differences that we, uh, we need to consider. There are just a, uh, a few times and occasions in places where the scripture refers to things of this ilk. But, um, but before we think about that, just think back a little bit about what Rome actually is. It is the final stage of the kingdom of men. It is the stage that still exists at the return of Christ and is therefore destroyed by him 
as the warlike horse rider of Revelation 19. And what is it? What is Rome? It's a very different thing to all of the other things on the earth. You see, although the Roman Empire fell and disappeared, well, Rome didn't really, did it? It sort of put on some new shoes and a jacket and became a church, a very religious thing, apparently. So what was previously the Roman Empire is still very obvious in the world today because its structure is still the benchmark for modern political systems. Um, the Pax Romana, uh, you may have heard of that, that is the Roman peace. It was a, a period of peace that lasted a great deal of time in which, well, basically they'd squashed all their enemies, but they didn't have any wars anymore and everyone got along and everybody had food until the plagues started, until the corruption became obvious. The Pax Romana was a legend of time that people still aim for. You can't miss Rome today though, can you? Rome has an opinion about everything. In fact, I think it was uh, just the other day I said a talks we were listening to where, um, where the, one of the popes had given one of his encyclicals. I can't remember the title of it now, but it was all to do with the control of the media and how important it was going to be for them, the control of media information in the ages to come. And that was given sort of 25, 30 years ago with their desire to do so. So Rome has then today its, uh, its traveling figurehead. It's very, very many emissaries. It's got outposts all over the world. It holds great influence all over the globe, possibly more now than we have ever seen now that the so-called leader of the free world, uh, one Joe Biden in America, is a Roman Catholic. The only time that's ever happened before, of course, it happened for a, a very short amount of time and then somebody shot John F. Kennedy. So a Catholic is control of the United States of America. The policeman of the world is drunk. That's what we're saying. Now, what's going to happen? The causes of those who wish to do wrong are going to advance very speedily. And so all the more for us to be ready brothers and sisters, very, very much, because the world is going to change fast. And already it is. Have you turned on the news? Even the little bits that do get through, that NATO are in talks because Russia's amassing troops on the border of Ukraine. They're about to go in, you know, that there is, uh, that there is courts that Boris Johnson is condemning because they are now taking on the nation of Israel for their war crimes in the Gaza Strip. What courts? Oh, some nice European Catholic ones in The Hague, of course. And we all know what they'll have to say. Absolutely out of control, the world is going fast. Out of man's control. But all of these things, of course, are guided by the Father. And they advance the coming of his Son. And that great change, as Bible students, we believe, is on the horizon. So never in the history of mankind as long as it has been has just one city ever actually managed to be the one there's always been others around it one of them's never been the absolute all it's never been the the destination of all pilgrims there's never been one that's been the fountain of all knowledge 
or the origin of all laws or the throne of just one king of the whole world. That has never actually happened. But, of course, we know that when the Lord Jesus comes, that's exactly what does happen and that it brings an unending peace, that it brings unparalleled prosperity to all of the inhabitants of the earth who will submit and obey and worship their creator. So the God of heaven then has sworn the decree that this will be so. So when he installs his son as king in Jerusalem, not in Mecca, not in Washington, not London or Rome, but in Jerusalem, that's the future capital of the entire world, then that will accomplish the replacing of the kingdom of men. So just a few more places, if we can, we want to look at some of the things that, uh, that God fixes to install. I think we've seen enough tonight to understand why, haven't we? You know, if just in case we were a bit blurred before, I think we get it now. This world is not a good thing, you know, it's really not. And the more God looks on it and all of the evils that it has done to all of his people and his followers down through the ages, the more we understand. Come to uh, the book of Revelation again, if you will, and uh, into chapter 11 this time. I look forward, if I hopefully leave some time for uh, discussion about this, these verses have been much interest in our community down through ages. And, um, and I wonder what people will make of them now, whether they'll be the same of, of what I say. Uh, so Revelation chapter 11, we've got a, we'll take the large picture. So verse uh, 15 of Revelation 11. The seven angels sounded. There were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations should have been grateful because this is exactly what they had sought after. One of power to rule over them that could provide for them and protect them. It's what they'd all signed up for all down the ages since Nimrod. And yet they were angry and wrath because God's wrath was come. In the time of the dead, that they should be judged, thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great. And this last phrase, look, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. In your margin, you probably have the word there, corrupt. They corrupt the earth. Now, I was asked by a brother and sister not that long ago, um, do you think that the reason that God's coming back to sending Jesus back to do all these things that he's going to do is because man's causing global warming? And I said, no, I don't believe that at all. Um, they, they, this brother and sister were really stirred up by it, right? Absolutely. Clearly, they'd had the news on. And you are going to find, by the way, that global warming, now that the pandemic is, is meeting its demise as far as the, the media comes, that global warming will be the next big thing by which they try to control and, and contract the, the freedoms of the people of this world. Mark my words. Um, 
So do I think that it's global warming? No. Do I think that man could possibly warm up the planet with anything he's ever invented? No. Do I wake up in the morning and feel the heat of the sun as you do? Yes. And it changes. Just for one second, the sun goes behind a cloud and you feel the temperature drop. God controls the sun, not man. There's nothing that man can do to warm or to cool an entire planet. The arrogance of it alone is just strange. But that doesn't mean that he's not wrecking everything. It doesn't mean that he's not cutting down all the trees and not replanting them. It doesn't mean that he's pouring toxic substances into the, the waters on an unprecedented scale and has been now for years. This is all very true. But I don't think that that's what it's talking about. When it says, I'll destroy them which corrupt the earth, you find that's exactly the same language as Genesis chapter 6, where God's talking about the reason he would flood the earth. He says, I will destroy that's hebrew word shakath i will destroy those that destroy the earth or that corrupt the earth and uh yeah very interesting reflections in the psalm on it as well all of that word destroy it's also used of the um the frog-like spirits the frogs that came into into egypt they destroyed the people they corrupted everything they wrecked it all and that's what mankind of course is doing with the way that God has instituted in the earth. Uh, I think looking at the, uh, the clock, we need to get a bit of motor on. Come back to uh, the Psalms again, if you would, and to Psalm two, please. We, near the start of our talk, referred to many of what's known as the Christadelphian community, which tend away from subjects like this. They won't focus on what the kingdom of men is because they're quite comfortable in it. And they, they profess to, to preach a, a gospel. Um, and this is, this has always blown my mind. What's the gospel that you preach? Oh, well, we've got a praise the Lord hymn book and we're not listening from that. And we have, we've got this different Bible here and we, we read from that because it's a bit easier. And no, what's the gospel that you preach, please? Uh, what's the good news, isn't it? Well, what's the good news? Well, Jesus, Jesus has saved us. Yes, from what? Ah, from ourselves, from death, from the corruption of mankind. And when will all of this be fulfilled? It's accomplished already, but when will the fulfillment of it be seen in the earth? And of course, it's at the coming of his kingdom because he's coming and he's going to establish a kingdom which overthrows, this is the important bit, it overthrows and replaces all of the kingdoms of men. They cannot be allowed to survive the millennium and their rebellious spirit in those thousand years eventually has to be completely got rid of because they just won't recognize God for what he is. They think they can have the power and control. So now you see why I say all that now. Psalm 2, please, um, verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Now, you probably know that these verses are, are referring initially to uh, well, it's Acts chapter four explains them of all of the rulers that came against the Lord Jesus at his first coming. 
and uh, and it's very clear in its language there but we keep reading look because we know that it has implications for the age to come he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh the lord shall have them in derision he'll speak unto them in his wrath vex them in his sore displeasure yet i have or i will set my king upon my holy hill of zion and move down to verse 10 be wise now therefore o ye kings be instructed ye judges of the earth serve yahweh with fear rejoice with trembling kiss the sun lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little because blessed are all they that put their trust in him and we we won't go but we could go to zechariah chapter 14 that talks about the calling of them to go up to jerusalem to keep the feast of tabernacles and if they won't go we don't get any rain entire nations probably because of one or two corrupt rulers won't get rain oh they'll change quick absolutely and if they don't they'll have a plague and we all know what that's like now don't we oh they'll change quick and so the work of the millennium is a strict and powerful work to install the kingdom of god on this earth uh, come to isaiah if you will in chapter two please Again, I'm, I'm mindful that, uh, that many of us uh, are very familiar with these things, but I find that to have them put in context before us, not only as exhortational, but also instructional for the younger among us as well. And, uh, and maybe the more middle-aged and older as well, we might have forgot some of the things. It's nice to, to hear them again now and then, isn't it? You know. So Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 says the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem to come to pass in the last days that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established in the top, the head of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Many people shall go and say, come ye, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. I think it was uh, Stephen Palmer that in quoting that verse to me said, you know, it's written in the building outside the UN, you know, where 196 nations meet continually and more than 90% of all of the things they've ever been decided are against the tiny nation of Israel. Oh yeah. You're going to beat your swords into plowshares. <laughs> uh, things, things have got to change for the accomplishment of that. So there's a new world center then of the coming of the kingdom of Christ. Zion, elevated, the destination for all pilgrims, the root of all law, the throne of international judgment. And what's the result we just read? Farming instead of war. Oh, what a wonderful thing. And just imagine what that means as a, a change to the people of the earth. 
no more corruption, no more corrupt military budgeting, no more warhead testing, no more ethnic cleansing, no more invading. A few chapters over in Isaiah chapter 9. Again, familiar to us. There's, there's reasons that we gravitate towards these, these chapters of such hope, brothers and sisters. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, or uh, I think Alan Clark once said, the Father of the Age. Oh, I like that. He, on behalf of God, he brings in, he births the, the great age of the millenniums, it were, the Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government and his peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice. You know, judgment has become among our community a bit of a dirty word, isn't it? People don't like to hear it anymore. But to judge between right and wrong, Hebrews chapter one says that's the reason Christ was anointed. That's the reason that the Lord Jesus was anointed, because he loved righteousness and he hated evil. He was able to, to judge between the two. He'll establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will perform this. Oh, I love the confidence of that last, that last phrase. He is jealous for the planet he has made. He is jealous for mankind he has created. He will continue to work. It won't be ignored. He will do this. Now, we've gone for quite a while. I said I wanted to try and leave some time for discussion if it happens. So let's see if we can wrap things up then with uh, words that Peter says in his second epistle, please. So the second of Peter and uh, chapter three, just to really try and bring it home to us. The kingdoms of men have been in formation now reaching their ripe stench for 6,000 years. That's a long time, right? No matter how you look at it, even as God appreciates uh, a 1,000 years as one day, six days of that, it's a long time, no matter how you look at it, right? 6,000 years. And it is all going to be torn down. It is all going to be replaced. In fact, I had the, uh, the privilege of going for a walk earlier on this afternoon, um, with um, Brother Gordon and Sister Rachel Sutcliffe, who've been down at their caravan. And uh, as we were walking, Gordon and I were chatting, as Gordon's great at. And, um, and he says that he'd been looking at the things that were around him, about buildings that exist and all of these things. And, and he'd come across some information, I can't remember where he said from, of just how quickly it all disappears. Down here, of course, I can tour you of the, the old tin mines, you know, and I say old because they haven't been used for mostly about 100 years, although they seem to look about 400 years old. <laughs> but as soon as the weeds get in and all the mortar starts to fall out, there's very little left of them. They disappear very, very quickly. God's designed nature to overcome these things. Millennium. Be lucky if you saw a highway at the end of it, wouldn't you? So the second of Peter 
chapter 3 and um, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. He's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up or discovered. Now we know that that was talking about the last day of Judah's commonwealth. Uh, to quote another speaker, the features of the kingdom of men at the fullness of any of its ages have always been the same. The characteristics that make God angry, that man shows, have always been the same. His reasons for replacing it. Well, verse 11, look. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, where in the heavens, that's the systems of rulership, being on fire shall be dissolved. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless.